0: Last week we started this new series that we've called 117, Learn to Do Good. Now, If you're a Christian, you learn to do justice. If you're a Christian hip-hop head, you, you know I'm biting off 116. Uh, and, and their label and their, their slogan coming from Romans 116, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Well, what comes after 116? Well, 117, right? There you go. Isaiah 117, where the prophet Isaiah writes there in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. There's a connection between those two verses and these themes. First comes justification, Romans 1.16. Then comes justice. That all those who are justified through faith in Christ are meant to then become justice-seeking people through faith in Christ. And so we have come to sort of take up this theme because I'm convinced that um, this is an area of Christian discipleship sorely lacking in today's church. How to think about justice. And our responsibility for doing justice and to do that in a biblical way. So our goal in this series are, are fourfold. Number one, we want to understand the, the biblical concept of justice. I, I want us very much to be digging into the Bible to see what thus saith the Lord about this issue. Number two, we want to apply then that biblical idea of justice to Christian discipleship. So we're not meant to be those who look into the mirror of God's word, then turn away and forget what we saw. We're meant to be those who look into the mirror of God's word and are transformed by what we see and walk out what we see in God's word. A third goal for this series is that then we consequently refrain, at least our conversation as a church we frame the conversation about justice. Escaping the worldly categories which so often cause conflict and division and and acquiring biblical categories which we pray, number four, work toward our unity. The Spirit of God unites the body of Christ. The Word of God which the Spirit gives is meant to unite the body of Christ. If, if Christ and his word is the north star, then we should all be finding ourselves traveling toward Christ and his word in this area of our discipleship. So those are those are our goals. And again, we, we began last week with something of an introduction and an overview. We talked about 10 reasons why we should not do this series. Right? So you know this series and this conversation is fraught with problems on the right and the left. Problems everywhere you turn. There are potential ways for us to misunderstand each other, misjudge each other, mistreat each other. We're not doing it for that reason. We're doing it because the Bible gives us compelling reasons to press into this subject. Well, first of all, we ought to say we should do this for our own happiness. Right? that the Bible promises us That we will have that happiness that comes from knowing God Himself if we study this aspect of God's Word. And number two, we'll have this happiness that comes from pleasing God in worship. Remember we thought about Amos chapter 5 where God says to Israel that basically they were trampling His courts with their worship because they were bringing these offerings but they were unrighteous. They were unjust. And God says, I abhor your sacrifices. I hate your worship. And so we're led to believe that we may please God, the God who loves us, if we understand this subject and apply it. Well, our happiness also then comes from understanding the gospel more deeply. As we said before, if Christ has come for our justification, he has also come that we might learn to be just and to demonstrate God's justice in the world. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, that's Paul's whole argument there, that God is both just and the justifier of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, that's part of the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Who is justified? Well, it's the one who forgets about himself and helps those who are in need, left broken and bleeding on the side of the road. So the justified life looks like a just life. And we're meant to understand and we discover a deeper happiness in the gospel if we understand this. And number four, we understand that we are made to be more more happy, Matthew 5 verse 6, because if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we'll be filled. Those are the blessed ones in God's kingdom. Now, in the first half of this series, all I want to do is sort of lay down some theological floorboards. Just want to put in place some basic theological sort of planks. And in the second half of the series, what I want to do is take some topics that are um, particular or um, pertinent to our community, some specific issues, and work through the theological foundation uh, in in thinking about those issues. Things like gentrification, things like mass incarceration, and so on. And so the first half is trying to get the theology right, and the second half is trying to work out some application of that theology. Y'all with me? Amen. So this morning, the question is where do we start? If we're coming to the Bible and we're trying to think about justice theologically, wh- where do we start? Where-, where do we begin? Well, I want in a text this morning, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, I want from this text this morning to sort of make two observations that verse 23 tells us where the world starts its discussion of justice. And verse 24 tells us where the Christian should start their discussion and understanding and practice of justice. If you had one thought from this morning, it would be very simply this. There can be no healthy Christian understanding or practice of justice that does not begin with the nature and character of God himself. There can be no healthy Christian understanding and practice and pursuit of justice that is not centered from beginning to end on who God is and what God is like and how we're to follow Him. Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 and 24 Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Well, the first thing we want to observe here is where the world most often starts its discussion and practice of justice. Again, we see it there in verse 23. But I want to remind us of the context of Jeremiah. If you look back to Jeremiah chapter 8, beginning in uh, verse 18, Jeremiah is doing what he's famous for he's weeping. He's the weeping prophet. He's the prophet who sees the brokenness of Israel, who sees the disarray of God's people, and in this context sees the injustice of God's people, and he breaks out in in lament. He wrote a whole book called Lamentations. He's weeping at at the state of God's people. That's what's happening from verse 18 of chapter 8 down to verse 2 of chapter 9. And then he describes what the people are like in verses 3 to 9 of chapter 9. Look there with me. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil. And they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for them. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Things were rough in Israel's day, in Jeremiah's day. But beloved, the situation in Jeremiah's day teaches us a lot about the nature of injustice in our day. At least five things, quick observations from the context here. Number one, nearly all injustice involves crooked speech. You see that there in verses 3 and 5? Falsehood and truth has grown strong in the land. Everyone deceives his neighbor, verse 5, have taught their tongue to, to speak lies. Be careful with the tongue. It will often be the main weapon in oppression and unrighteousness. It will be how the foundation is laid for injustice. It will be the way the rationale is given for oppression. Be careful, little children, what you hear and what you speak. But secondly, notice, nearly all injustice destroys neighbor love. See there in verses 4 and 8? Jeremiah says, let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in his brother. For every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. That's a rough neighborhood. Can't trust the brother on your left or your right. The one in the alley across the way or across the street in front of you. You got to keep your eye on all them rascals. Verse 8, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. Notice, with his mouth each man speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Injustice destroys neighbor love. Number 3, nearly all injustice, notice, leads to other injustices. Verse 6, That image, they were heaping oppression upon oppression. Deceit upon deceit. A little bit earlier in the text, maybe verse 3, they proceed from evil to evil. Once you start on the path of injustice, it's hard to then sort of correct your steps. It's like it's interesting He you speak so much here about lying and deceit. You, you all know your, your, your grade school teachers taught us and our moms taught us that once you tell one lie, what do you got to do next? You got to tell another lie, right? To cover up for that lie. And you tell another lie to cover up for that lie. Before long, you have lied so much you don't know yourself, right? It's the nature of sin and injustice. Sin is greedy. Evil is greedy. Injustice is not easily satisfied. It gets a little taste of success and it, it only wants to grow. And, and here the people are heaping it upon heap and, and, and just pouring it on. It's the nature of injustice. It grows like a cancer. Number four, notice this. No one who practices injustice truly knows the Lord. See at the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 6. They do not know me, declares the Lord. Verse 6 is even stronger. They refuse to know me. So we can be sure that the person who practices injustice is not saved. They are demonstrating in the very practice that they do not know the Lord, that they refuse to know the Lord, that they refuse to submit to God's word and to obey God's commands. We don't need to be sort of confusing them or ourselves about that. Meet an unjust man and an unjust woman and you meet a non-Christian man and a non-Christian woman. The Lord says here, they don't know me. They refuse to know me. Which brings us number five to this. Those who practice injustice will be punished by God. Verse nine. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Now if this is true of God's old covenant people Israel, how much more true is it of people who do not know the Lord? If he's going to call his people to account, if judgment begins at the household of God, Peter says, what's going to be the escape of those who do not know God? There won't be one. See, injustice is not just a problem in this life, beloved. If a person does not turn away from the sin of injustice, then it will also follow them into the next life. And that's when it's really going to be a problem because they will face the holy wrath of God. So in this way, what we're talking about in this series is a gospel issue. It's not something we're adding to the gospel. It's what the gospel comes to solve. It's it's what necessitates a gospel. It it, it is injustice and the sin of injustice that, 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 that leads God to have to save us and to send us a savior. And so it's vital for us to understand the gospel, understand our lives as Christians, that we understand this subject Now, apparently, the people in Jeremiah's day didn't recognize how widespread their corruption was. Sin is blinding. And that's why God sent them a prophet to preach to them about their sin. They they couldn't see their sin and they couldn't see their society the way God saw it. So he sent Jeremiah to proclaim, thus saith the Lord. In verse 23, this is what Jeremiah says. He, He tells us where the people were putting their hope, right? Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. The world turns to three things as the source of their joy and their hope and their pride. They're they're bragging, they're boasting. You see them there listed for us. Wisdom, power, and money. The key word in verse 23 it's not just the word boast, but that little three-letter word, his. He boasts in his wisdom. He boasts in his might or power. He boasts in his riches. It's not that money is bad in and of itself. It's not that wisdom is bad in and of itself. It's it's not that power and influence is bad in and of itself. It is rather that when we trust those things apart from God and when God is not the source they become really terrible things. Even today the world is full of people trying to save themselves and base their lives upon man's wisdom and man's power. And man's riches, you can see it everywhere from your favorite secular hip-hop artist to your favorite politician. There's no real difference between Jeremiah's day and our day. There's no real difference from the the street philosopher to the academic philosopher when it comes to seeking a source of wisdom and power and wealth independent of God and boasting in it, flossing in it. You know, trying to get a shine, right, in this. And for our purposes, it's important for us to see that this same love of man's wisdom and man's power and man's wealth influences man's understanding of justice. Harvard professor Michael Sandel wrote a great book, I highly commend to you, called Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do Now? Well, what's the right thing to do? I'm told you could also see his lectures on on YouTube. And he breaks basically man's approach to justice into three categories, three basic approaches. First of all, there's this kind of utilitarian approach, which which means that the the just thing according to this view is whatever maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain. If you can sort of translate everything into dollar terms, Whatever is sort of the most valuable in terms of pleasure and minimizes pain, according to this view, basically, that's the just thing to do. The second view comes along and criticizes. That one might call this the libertarian view. And it begins by saying, no, actually, what's most fundamental to justice is that we respect the individual and the individual's freedom. And so people should be free to do whatever they want, provided they do no harm to others. The person belongs to him or herself and cannot and should not be forced to give up their earnings or their labor or their person for the welfare of others. They may voluntarily do that, but they cannot be coerced to do that. And thirdly, what we might call this sort of moral virtue sort of approach and that's the idea that, that justice is really about promoting virtue, promoting the, the good life. The challenge is to do the right thing to the right person, right? To the right extent, at the right time, with the right motive and in the right way. Right, that sounds good, but all those, all those mentions of right, you know that's hard, right? Now each one of these rep- approaches require that we, number one, define what is moral, got to have some working definition of morality. And number two, each one of these approaches has something to say about the good life. How we should understand the good life. Is the good life all about just pleasure and avoiding pain? Is the good life all about individual freedom and having nobody trample on your freedom? Is the good life all about sort of promoting morality or something else? And beloved, this is why As Christians we cannot avoid conversations about justice without doing violence to our faith. The area of morality and the notion of the good life well that belongs to Bible people. That belongs to people who know something about right and wrong as God defines it and know something about that life that really is the good life as as God defines it. It just brings us, as a matter of definition, into this arena. And we can't sort of step back away from it without doing violence to our faith. There's something else we should say about these three approaches, broadly speaking. There are exceptions, but broadly speaking, as matters of um, public philosophy, and, and theories of justice, they all leave out God in their formulation. Some of these approaches simply treat God and religion as a matter of individual freedom. You know, you do you, I'll do me. Others intentionally rule out any mention or consideration of God and religion as unfair in the public square. And those approaches very intentionally want to offer a vision of the good life It does not require people to believe in God. As a consequence, they they base their point of view from the start on man's wisdom, man's power, man's riches. Now, if a Christian merely says, I'm in one of these schools or the other, Really says I'm a conservative or I'm a liberal or I'm a libertarian without taking God into account, then they're likely to find their political theory comes into conflict with their faith at some point. If they don't keep in mind the very different starting points of their faith and their philosophy, then usually what tends to happen is they will bend their faith to fit their philosophy rather than bend their philosophy to fit their faith. And beloved, I think this is a huge part of why we struggle in the church to talk about this subject. Because if if we don't sort of recognize the adjustments we have to make in in sort of adopting these kinds of approaches, then we just sort of wind up sort of casting Molotov cocktails at each other and, and sort of demonizing each other in that way. We must keep in mind 1 Corinthians 1. Turn with me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is as if the Apostle Paul writes verses 18 to 31 in 1 Corinthians 1 as a sermon based on Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Jeremiah warns against boasting in man's wisdom and power and wealth. And Paul, picking up the issue of wisdom and power, explains why that's a foolish boast. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Let me read this section for us. Follow along with me, if you will. For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. You see, man's wisdom will never take you to God, not to a saving knowledge of God the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles but to those who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see what the Bible is telling us. That man loves his wisdom, he loves his power, he loves his wealth, and he seeks to build a life based upon that apart from God. But God looks at it and says, you know what? I'm going to do something foolish in the eyes of men. I'm going to send my son in human flesh. He's going to die upon the cross for their sins. I'm going to raise him three days later from the grave. And the world looks at it and says, foolish. But those who know, know that that's the wisdom and the power of God. The wisdom of God is displayed in Christ. The power of God is displayed in Christ for everyone who believes. Christ is our philosophy. This is why Paul writes in Colossians 2 verse 8, Let no man take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Why? Because Christ is our philosophy. And this is why we can never expect to be sort of popular in the world's eyes. We can never expect to go into the public square and have people say, welcome you Christians, tell us about Jesus. They think Jesus is foolish. They think the cross is foolish. They think Jesus is weak. They think the cross is weak. But we know that the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so we take our stand with Jesus. And Paul wants to encourage us. Look at verse 26. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Flucking out of second grade. (laughs) Y'all weren't wise. Not not many were powerful. No. Not, Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You hear Paul thinking back to Jeremiah nine 23, don't we? They're just boasting in their wisdom, boasting in their money, boasting in their power. God said, you won't boast in my face. And he does this marvelous thing for us, Christian, verse 30. Because of him, because of God, who will not accept human boasting in his presence, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God. That is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Why? Verse 31. So that as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What am I trying to say? Very simply, if our approach to justice leaves out God and starts with man, then we're going to end up foolish and powerless. We're going to end up foolish and powerless. Matthew Henry, commenting on Jeremiah 9, writes this. In this world of sin and sorrow, ending soon in death and judgment, how foolish for men to glory in their knowledge, health, strength, riches, or in anything which leads them under the dominion of sin and the wrath of God. Matthew Henry says, we're going to die soon. And we're going to meet a holy God and we will feel foolish if we go to that holy God having staked our souls on something as temporary as money and power and human wisdom. That's how the world starts, beloved. So now the question for us is who or what has been your most influential teacher when it comes to justice? Is it God and his word, or is it man? Who's had the most influence on your thinking about what constitutes justice? Is it God, or is it man? Which brings us then to our second thing here, our second observation on verse 24. We want to think about where then the Christian should start. I've been saying it all along, but let's, let's unpack it. The Christian must start, continue, and end their thinking about justice with his God. That's what we infer from verse 24. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that there are three great Christian virtues. Faith, hope, and love, that these three abide. Love is the greatest of them, but they all continue. And we can map those three virtues over this verse, over verse 24. And in in doing so, we get a, a slightly longer answer as to where we are meant to start as Christians with our understanding and discussion of justice. First, we must begin with faith in God. That's not simply a Sunday school answer. That's not something to take for granted. Notice the text in verse 24. That's something to brag in, to boast in, to glory in, to get happy about. The verse begins, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Now remember what God says about the people of Israel in Jeremiah's day back in verse 3 and verse 6. You remember there? They, They don't know me and they refuse to know me. And remember what the people boasted in in verse 23, that they were boasting in their power and wealth and wisdom. Verse 24 stands in contrast to all of that. That giant word, but, right there at the beginning changing the direction of the text. It sets off a contrast between those who really do know God and, and all those who are described before who, who don't know God. And when it calls us to boast in the knowledge of God. It means that not only does God's true people know and understand him, they they delight in him. They adore him. They can't stop talking about him. Like that young man who's never had a girlfriend and finally gets one. He done introduced her to you five times as his girlfriend. And you see him again, it's like he ain't never seen you before. He's like, let me introduce you to my girlfriend i was like, well, does she have a name? No, this is my girlfriend. (laughs) Boasting, glorying, delighting. That's what we're meant to do. Let me introduce you to my God. You ain't never met nobody like him. His name is Jehovah. Some people call him Yahweh. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Let me tell you about him, what his love is like. And his power is light. We are meant to go beyond head knowledge to this heart's delight in God. This is what he says. We are meant to understand and to know him. And so the question for you this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, is how do we get to know and understand God? John 17, 3 tells us this. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is synonymous with knowing God. That's not quite yet answered how you get to know Him, but I'm trying to sort of tell you what you get when you know Him. And when you know Him, you get this abundant, eternal, unending, satisfying, brand new life with God. John, Jesus tells us in John chapter 14 verse 6, you will know these words, many of you, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then the Lord Jesus adds this. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. That's how you get to know God. That's how you get to know the Father is by knowing the Son, the the one who leads the way to the Father, the only path to the Father. Beloved, all roads do not lead to God. That's man's wisdom. Divine wisdom says there's one road that leads to God, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And if you know him, then you will know the Father also. And so Jesus puts it this way in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Notice this. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is what it is to know God. To believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world to take our place. He took our place in two ways. He took our place in obeying God for us because our obedience was broken. We had sinned against God. And He took our place in dying for us. We deserve the death penalty. That's what God had pronounced against sin. But Christ has taken that penalty for us. He dies on the cross. He suffers God's judgment in our place. So that we will be freed from judgment. And so that through faith in Him and repentance from sin, we would be reconciled to God. And the promise is, is if we know Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior and we trust Him and follow Him in faith, the Father comes to us, and the Son comes to us, and the Spirit comes to us, and they live with us. They live in us, and they communicate their love to us. Beloved, this is what it is to to know God. It's really quite simple. You, You reduce it to ABCs if you like. You acknowledge that you have sinned against God, And you deserve his judgment. You believe that Jesus is God's Son who died for your sins personally and was judged for your sins personally and was raised from the grave three days later for your resurrection and righteousness with God. You acknowledge your sin, you believe in Christ, and you commit yourself to following Jesus in the obedience that comes from faith. You become a disciple you become a student, a follower of Jesus. This is how you get to know God. And it's a marvelous knowledge worth boasting in. If you're here this morning and you've not yet done that, you've not acknowledged your sin, you've not turned from your sin and believed in Christ and committed yourself to following Jesus, we would like nothing more than to help you do that. To to teach you what it means to do that. To show you this God who has loved you through Jesus His Son. And to see you walk right into heaven's reward, beginning now and on that great day when Christ returns. See, beloved, life doesn't begin until we place our faith in God, until we place our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And if life doesn't begin without faith in God, then it makes sense that justice doesn't begin without faith in God. Let me put it this way. Whatever approach we take to justice whatever approach, it must first begin with acknowledging and centering God. It must begin with our relationship with God, that we understand Him and know Him through Jesus Christ. If God is not at the middle then we're off to the sides. We're off target. For us to have a distinctively Christian understanding of justice, we have to boast in the Lord and in nothing else. So, questions. Who or what does my political philosophy boast in? When you think about your approach to justice, what does it suggest you're boasting in? Number two, who or what makes me happy when I think about my approach to justice? Are you delighting in God? Or are you delighting in something else as you think about this subject? And does my approach reveal an accurate and deep understanding of who God is and what He's like? So if we were to see ourselves on film pursuing justice and making an argument for righteous causes and in conversations with brothers or sisters or, or people who are not yet believers on topics of justice, if we were able to watch that on the film would, would we have the suggestion, would have it suggested to us as we watched ourselves That we know God deeply and personally. That we understand Him and what He's like. What does our pursuit of justice reveal about our knowledge of God and faith in Him? Which brings us to hope in God. Beloved, verse 24 does not only call us to faith in God, it also calls us to hope in God. It's striking, beloved, how hopeless so many of our conversations about justice are. Think right now about the situation in Parkland, Florida and the school shooting. 17 more children killed by a gunman for no reason other than evil. Right? That's right. Amen. The sides in the debate are well established. Pro-gun, anti-gun. Second Amendment huggers and Second Amendment questioners. Right? The only people in the situation right now, it seemed to me, who have hope of changing things are the students. The grown folk messing everything up. Can't have a reasonable conversation. Like so many things, I think it will have to be children who lead us through the mess. There's just hopelessness that's bound up with it. When you hear people say, well, nothing will change. Nothing can be done. It's an intractable problem. It's hopeless. But beloved, verse 24 is a sure ground for hope. Notice what God says. He says, I am the Lord. He, he's running things. He's the ruler of the universe. He's got control and power over everything. That's what it means for him to be Lord. He says, I am the Lord and, and that might be enough to give us hope, but then he makes the hope more specific. He says, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth. He says, not only am I in control, but I am bending the moral arc of the universe toward justice. I am changing the timeline toward righteousness. I am at work to make my hesed, my covenant love, my steadfast love and mercy known in the world. That's a sure ground for hope, beloved. Amen. Our view of justice must keep in mind what God is doing in the world. That's the basis of our hope. He says he practices. He's, he's learned at it. it. He's, he's taken a million free throws at this. You know, he's, he's lined up and takes shots when nobody's looking. You know, he's in the gym, he's working, he's, he practices, he's committed to, he's dedicated to doing these things in the world. His character flows out in his actions. He does love in the earth. He does justice in the earth. He does righteousness in the earth. Many times it's, it doesn't look that way, though, does it, beloved? Let's be honest, right? Real talk. Many times it doesn't look that way to us. And many times we're left wondering, like many of the prophets in the Bible, where is God? Where is justice? How long, O Lord? What are you doing up there? And sometimes the prophet's like, can't you hear me? <laughs> this hurts. See, as Christians, we're not escapists. We're not people who just kind of get triumphalistic and no matter what's happening, you know, we just have these cliches that we grab onto and, and we kind of deny reality. As Christians, we're realists. We are enabled because God is Lord to acknowledge how bad things are and yet not give in to hopelessness. And we're able to not give into hopelessness because we're acknowledging not just how bad things are, but we're also acknowledging how great and good God is. And so we're going we're to we're 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 be the people who are most able to talk about life the way it really is, and at the same time, most able to press on and to persevere in hope because we know that even if we don't see God's justice right now, He's still working it out. He's still getting it done. He's still on the throne. Here's the way the Bible puts it. We do not walk by sight. We walk by faith. And our faith is a seeing that's more real and more permanent than the things we see with sight. Because God is more real and more permanent than the things that are happening in our world. And this is not the only place God tells us this about himself. Psalm 103 verse 6. There the psalmist says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. I love the word all. He He works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. If you like, turn with me to Psalm 146. The 146th Psalm, verses 5 to 10 There the psalmist takes up this theme and he's really singing to give himself hope. And these words append to give God's people hope in God. Notice verse 5 of Psalm 146. The writer says there, blessed, happy. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Notice, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Verse 6, this God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Notice, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. It's a wonderful text. Who executes justice for the oppressed? Oh, talk to me. Who executes justice for the oppressed? Who sets the prisoners free? Who opens the eyes of the blind? Who lifts those who are bowed down? Who is it that loves the righteous? And who is it who watches over the sojourners? And who is it that upholds the widow and the fatherless? And who ruins the wicked? And how long will the Lord reign? We have reason to hope. And whatever our approach to justice is, it should be fueled by hope because God is our God. You know what happens sometimes? Not only do we sometimes think that the Lord is not doing these things. We sometimes think that when these things get done, it was us who did it. we got to be careful. Our longing for justice, if we want to be Christians about it, must be a longing that springs up out of hope. There is no biblical reason for a Christian to be hopeless. Even the Christian who laments and grieves, like we see Jeremiah doing in chapter 8 and 9, when they turn to God, should experience hope inside the grief. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet as we said but that does not make him a weakling prophet he's weeping but he's not weak because his hope is in God who does justice and righteousness in the earth beloved grief and hopelessness are not the same thing grief comes from seeing the brokenness and the injustice for what it really is grief comes from having our hearts moved by that brokenness and injustice Hopelessness is the opposite. It's an unmoved heart. Hopelessness sees the world as if there is no God. Hopelessness is to have your heart die in the face of brokenness. Never let someone pass hopelessness off to you as lamentation or grief or an approach to justice. It is not. We too often make heroes out of the hopeless and then wonder why so little progress gets made toward justice. So next time you vote, vote for somebody with some hope. Not somebody who's pie in the sky and escapist, but who can be real about the world and has hope for changing it. Not someone who's just gassing you up with good political rhetoric, but somebody who does have faith in God to see righteousness shine like the noonday sun. So we must begin with faith in God. We must continue with hope in God. And the final thing to observe at the end of verse 24 is this notion of love. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And here God is telling us what he loves. There's some difficulty in translating the verse. The word for there is it could give us the reason for why God practices steadfast love and righteousness and justice. Or it could go back to the people who who boast this way, the people who boast in the Lord. We don't have to worry too much about the distinction. God is pleased with himself, and God is pleased with those who are pleased with him. God is happy to produce love and justice and righteousness, and God is happy when his people pursue love and justice and righteousness. In fact, all of this flows from the, from the heart of God, and justice flows from a, a God-like love. Again, the word steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed often refer- refers to God's special covenant love with his people. But it's a rich word. It's sometimes translated love. It's sometimes translated mercy. It has in it the idea of grace. In other words, all the tenderness of God is packed in this word. And God delights in showing such love. We should not only look to God for justice and righteousness, but beloved, we should look to God for love, expecting him to love us as he promises Any true effort at justice must be an effort marked by love for God and love for neighbor and love for self. If our theory of justice abandons love, then it abandons God and it abandons the things that God delights in. So here are the questions. Number one, we should ask ourselves, does my approach to justice help me delight in what God delights in? Does my approach to justice help me delight in what God delights in? Number two, does my approach to justice help me recognize and appreciate others who delight in what God delights in? Especially the others who take a different point of view. Does my approach to justice help me recognize and appreciate others who delight in what God delights in? Beloved, those are our allies. And number three, does my approach to justice inspire me and lead me to love better? Does my approach to justice inspire me and lead me to love better? So let's conclude. As a church, we're seeking a biblical understanding of justice. And To arrive at a biblical understanding, we have to begin with God. Who he is, what he's like, what he does in the world, what he delights in. We have to lay aside man's wisdom and man's power and man's wealth in order to see the superior wisdom and power and riches that we have in Christ. If we don't do that, then we'll turn what should be an exercise in love into a contest of self-interest and force. Justice begins with God. So the Christian must begin their thinking with God. May the Lord help us to know him better, that we might follow him more faithfully. Let's pray to God. Father, perhaps it's fitting that we ask you for grace to do one thing this morning, and that is to boast in you to boast that we know and understand you to boast that you are our law lord to boast that you are the lord who loves us and the lord who does justice and righteousness in the earth let us boast in these things not with a superficial and light understanding Let us boast with that gladness and that joy and that freedom that comes up out of a deep fellowship with you. Let us boast in these things because we love you. And let us recognize that you first loved us. Lord, and out of this great love, help us to go out into the world and to bear faithful witness to what you're like and what you're doing. To view the world with eyes of faith, not given into hopelessness and despair. To, to view you as our great boast and not being drawn away by man's wisdom and man's wealth and man's power. Creating us a longing for your kingdom to come. And creating us a zeal to do those things, O oh Lord, that make your name great and that bless our neighbor with justice. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.